President and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. Tony Crescenzi, an Executive Vice President, Market Strategist at PIMCO. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on Sirius XM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, and also a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. He's the author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. I should note the professor is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. And our discussion today is not a recommendation for any trading strategies, nor tied to the offer sale of any investment products. Views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. Uh, our guest today, very special guest, the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Patrick Harker. He's going to be here in the studio with us for the hour. Uh, and similarly, uh, the Pat Harker's views are his own and not those of the members of the Federal Reserve. Uh, Pat Harker is a former dean of the Wharton School. We're very lucky to have him in the studio with us. Uh, and I should note that we are taping this interview on Wednesday ahead of our normal Friday showtime. Um, pr- professor, uh, before before I get into our, our formal introduction of Patrick Harker, why don't you give a little background uh, of, of knowing? Uh, oh, no, Pat. So, <laughs> Pat was my colleague at Wharton, and then he became my dean at Wharton, took a little sojourn as president of the University of Delaware, and then came back as my president of my regional Federal Reserve Bank. So, uh, and it was quite a thrill to hear him back. Well, we've, we've had several meetings. In fact, uh, our last meeting was on election day, mm-hmm. where uh, we both thought, oh, yeah, Hillary will probably win, although we knew there was risks. Uh, we we're talking a little bit about the scenarios. And of course, um, uh, a Trump victory has changed uh, everything an awful lot, of course, on policy uh, for the Fed, as well as uh, the economy. Um we're going to talk a lot about monetary policy. Uh, uh, Pat uh, will rotate on as a voting member uh, this year um, uh, from non-voting status, although whether you're voting or not, everyone has full say and, and discussion uh, at, the, at, at the Fed. Um, but uh, first, I'd, I'd like, to, like to ask, uh, I mean... People ask me, am I surprised about the big rally? And I said, you know, I thought I thought the uncertainty part of Trump, uh, and there still is a lot of it, was, was going to be a negative for the market. But I always knew that the basic policies uh, of the Republican Party, uh, and many of which are, are pretty close to Trump's, are, are very positive for the market. I thought it would take a little longer for them to get from the negatives to the positives, it took about six hours before <laughs> they said, wow, uh, uh, this could be very, very good. And I think part of it was he seemed to embrace the Republican agenda. He said he was meeting with Paul Ryan. Uh, you didn't say the very first thing I'm doing is building the wall and cutting off trade with China, which, of course, scares the market, and as it should. Um, and he has been much more conciliatory on that end uh, and has appointed people who are pretty are globalists and understand the importance of trade. Given all that, uh, are are you very surprised? You think it's overdone in stocks or uh, and in bonds because we've had a, a tremendous rise in yield? Or um, what do you think? Well, first, Jeremy, thanks for having me on. And Jeremy, it's great to see you again as well. Yeah. Um, so, as Jeremy said, to begin with, uh, these are my remarks and not the remarks of anybody else in the Federal Reserve System or the FOMC. So, in, in terms of the, the reaction, I think part of the reaction was just simply resolving uncertainty around the election period, right? Independent of who won, there was a lot of uncertainty around the election. We at the Philly Fed put out something called the Partisan Conflict Index, where we monitor and we scrape off the major media uh, different phrases to look at uh, how partisan the debate and the, the conversation is. And what we know is when that's heightened, the, that does hurt economic, uh, economic development and, and economic growth. So we saw a heightened – when we saw the government shut down, it was it elevated, and it stayed pretty elevated all the way through the election. We're, we don't yet have those post-election results, 
But my guess is that it's going to start to come down a little bit. So, again, we just have to recognize that any uncertainty is bad for the markets. Period. That's correct. So, well, and in, for going forward, I don't know how to answer that question yet because until there's specifics about policy that we can model and analyze, it's hard to say uh, what the impact will be. Directionally, I hear from the market what you've said, Jeremy, that uh, people are optimistic. But until the specific policies come in play and we can model those out, hard to say um, if the market has over or underreacted or whether it's going to boost or not boost economic growth. Yeah. I mean, we've had uh, what, a seven, six, seven, eight percent rise in the S&P. When people ask me, Jeremy, what's the source of the rise? I say, I think a big factor on this is corporate taxes, lowering corporate taxes. That's a main objective. It's actually an objective that even many of the Democrats had. As we know, there was a, a big movement for for corporate tax reform. Uh, and a number of the analysts that I see have raised, and, and they don't know whether it's going to be effective in this year, 2017 or 2018, but uh, they see a, a, an increase of 10% in earnings, and that in and of itself can explain a 10% rise in the market, and we actually have not even had that yet. So, uh, And the other thing, of course, is the hope, again, the hope of less regulations, uh, uh, how much will Trump do that? The, the Obamacare mandate being repealed, other regulations that's put uh, particularly on the financial system, as we know, being very important. And the third, I think, is the infrastructure spending. There's been some movement into stocks and, and some commodities that are related to that. So I rate on the stock market, the tax cut as being most important, the promise of regulation reduction being next. And then if if it does frosting on the cake, uh, if we get some push from infrastructure, I mean, how would how would you look at those? Three? No, so I agree. I gave a speech a little while ago on corporate tax reform, and we need to be competitive in the world, right? A lot of the issues that you see in a corporate boardroom, uh, and I sat on those, in those boardrooms before taking this job uh, at the Philly Fed, is the repatriation of a lot of those dollars. They're not coming back under our current uh, corporate tax structure. So I think that does have a positive impact. The question is, of course, uh, what will replace some of the revenue, if anything? Uh, And that, again, is a, a question that hasn't been answered. There are deficit hawks that still exist, and we'll worry about that issue. And again, how the total tax package, not just the corporate tax package, gets resolved over time is, in my mind, an open question. On the regulatory front, I think there is clearly um, momentum and positive momentum that people feel around that. Again, I need to see how that plays out over time. There are many things that uh, are on the table, but there are things that are going to be hard taking off the table. As we know, it's human nature. Once somebody gets something like their children staying on health care until they're 26 – or pre-existing conditions being covered, it's hard to bring that back. And people recognize that. So again, what are those packages? What are they going to look like when it's all said and done? That's really the key for me. Uh, it's Right now, it's too early to tell. A, a lot of discussion, of course, on Dodd-Frank. Uh, being president of any of the Federal Reserve uh, districts, you, you meet a, a lot with bankers. Um, I think there's some good things in Dodd-Frank. I think there's some bad things in Dodd-Frank. Can can we selectively undo? Uh, many people were on the impression that basically Dodd-Frank and other regulation have turned banks into utilities now, as they, they sometimes say, like a regulated utility. Uh, I mean, is is it that bad, or is, is there things that we can do to, to uh, you know, spur that, that banking system again? Sure. So I think take the third district, the Philadelphia district. We are predominantly a district with community banks. Mm -hmm. And like any crisis, I think we have to step back from this immediate moment in time and look at any crisis. The pendulum swings one way and then it starts to correct the other way. And we're already starting to see with the community banks, those who are in good standing, that we can lengthen the examination, the period between examinations. We don't need to do it every year. We can do it in 18 months. We can start to relieve some of the regulatory burden for them. I'm very worried about them because they don't have the scale, right, to be Mm -hmm. able to deal with a lot of the regulatory issues. 
And they are systemically important to their communities, but they're not systemically important in terms of the financial system overall. Collectively, I think they are. Community banks are an incredibly important part of the fabric of the American banking system. But I think there's going to be regulatory relief there. And I think in other areas, you'll start to see some regulatory relief. But as you said, I think there's some very good parts of Dodd-Frank that we need to maintain uh, so that we make sure that the system maintains its safety Which and ones are you think are very important? Well, I think some of the issues around resolution. I mean, mm-hmm. that continues to be very important. Whether it's in Dodd-Frank or in other venues, and we need to have a very clear path when a bank gets into trouble. How do we quickly resolve that issue and not let it linger for too long? Because when it lingers for too long, as we saw in the crisis, right, the contagion effects are quite severe. And so we just need to make sure it's that we more contain than just banks because it's, it's also, I mean, look what happened to Lehman, not Correct. really a bank. Correct. It's all what's called sci-fi significant financial institutions. Exactly. Um, so we, you know, how do you dismantle that in a way that uh, can bring about more certainty in the market? So some of those those things are. Do, what do you do? You think there's 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 going to be selective reform? Do you think it, there's going to be outright repeal? That seems a bit extreme at this point. Where, where do you think I, Congress I, could go there? I don't know. I mean, that that's up to Congress to decide what to do. But I do think we don't want to create these unintended consequences of removing everything and the things that are work, that we know are working well or the things that just need a little bit more time to play out to see whether it works well or not. Let me just reintroduce our guests here. We're talking with Pat Harker, the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. Uh, in the studio here, we have Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We're just talking about uh, banking regulation. One of the interesting stories this week has also been about the global banking rules, sort of the Basel uh, capital requirements. And there's a lot of discussion of how that's going to impact. And the U.S. took our medicine. We sort of delevered earlier. The global European banks maybe have, have held off to that deleveraging. Is that one of the things you're looking at? I mean, how do you see the leverage ratios across the systems and, and the risks over in over in Europe? Sure. I mean, we continue to monitor that. There are some countries in particular, Italy is a focus of attention right now uh, in understanding not only what's happening there, but again, the contagion that may have on U.S. institutions. Right now, that doesn't seem that it, it has a significant effect. So primarily for our mission of being the central bank of the United States, that's our primary focus, focused on what it means for the U.S. financial system and the U.S. banking industry. And right now, we don't see major effects, but you have to keep monitoring it. Uh, going back a bit on the corporate tax front, um, one of the forms, and I don't know if it's the, the major form right now of legislation that's being drawn up by the Republicans in the House, um, some of it's pretty drastic. Uh, uh, it's, it's related to the term called border adjustments. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard about that, but it, it basically is anything you sell abroad, we're not going to tax you at all. If they tax you, that's fine. But in return for that, um, you will not be able to deduct from your profits, the corporate profits. Now, that that rate is supposed to go down, but you will not be able to deduct from corporate profits any imports that you buy from ab- abroad. That would That would be a big... Devastating. I was I was talking to Senator Toomey a bit about that, and he was telling me about some firms, such as Walmart, by so much they said that they would be devastated if if if, if such a, a firm. It's basically almost going to a value added tax, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, it's a tax on on imports. I don't know if you've have has this come your way, but do you think something as radical as that change is? Is a possibility out of Congress? So, I, again, I, I can't opine on that. I mean, I'm not in that position to, to have an educated uh, opinion. I do know, however, in this globally interconnected world where you have these globally interconnected supply chains, it would be anything that would happen would be disruptive. The question is, is that disruption worth it? And that's really it's the cost benefit. So if you look, I was looking at some research recently, about 40 percent of the value added um, – uh, of the goods we import from Mexico is actually produced in the U.S. So the more highly engineered products are produced in the U.S., go across the border, and then come back. And that's happening all across the globe. So we really have to disentangle those integrated supply chains to get an answer. Uh, so it's not as though we're just simply importing something that's been produced solely in China or solely in Mexico. These parts are going back and forth. And so that's one of the things 
gives me pause about yeah. uh, having an opinion on this until you really disentangle those supply chains. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, what's your impression? I mean, this uh, unprecedented uh, Trump tweets uh, that have been barbs at certain corporations, you know, state, keep your firms here, or this is too expensive. Uh, uh, I mean, we've never seen that. I don't think out of any president or president-elect. Um, do, do you have a reaction to that as as part of policy? Not directly. I won't speak directly to uh, President-elect Trump's uh, mode of communication. However, there is a broad, broader issue of getting the policy framework right for economic growth, and that's what we're really focused on. And what, what are you, you talked about, I've been, I've been reading some of your speeches uh, that you've been make, making over the last year, and you talk about how you want, sort of your role in communicating the Fed's research sort of towards the, the community and how you're going to try to enhance, you know, the, the outreach of the Philadelphia Fed. Maybe talk about that, your, your mode of communication, how you want to sort of change that in the future. Sure. So, now, one of the things I think uh, is that the Fed as a system, and the regional Feds in particular, are not very well understood by not just the average American, but a lot of people who are in a position to know, but because they're busy, they just don't spend the time knowing it, right? I mean, we're all busy. So rather than us communicating information the way we want to communicate it, we need to flip it around and really ask who are the stakeholders, who are the people that need to know what we know, right? Which are facts and the research to the best of our ability not biased by any politics, just the facts as we know them on the economy. And how can how do they want to consume that information? And that's really at Philly what we're trying to do is change that whole dynamic around to really focus on the key influencers and people uh, people in the community, in the business community, in the banking community, in policy making uh, positions. How can we give them the information they need uh, to make? the best policy decisions they make. And that relates to the second point I've been trying to talk a lot about. The Fed, monetary policy, is an extremely blunt instrument, right? I mean, we have one tool, essentially, right? right? The Fed funds rate. We don't create economic growth. Good monetary policy, when it's good, creates the conditions for economic growth to occur. It doesn't stifle it. But we don't fundamentally create economic growth. Economic growth happens by real companies and real communities with real people working there. That's what we need to get out. We need to really focus more on those policies and us facilitating and having people understand we're not driving the economy in that sense. We're there to facilitate the economy growing. It's fiscal policy, immigration policy, labor policy. We can go down the list of the things we were talking about and many, many more. That creates the the real economic growth the country needs. I think that's so that's so important because the Fed has come under unfair criticism, in my opinion. You know, why didn't you know? Why don't you try to foster growth when, in the long run, it is productivity. Right. I mean, first of all, we have, have as we know a big slowdown in population growth, but given that, still we've had a real collapse on productivity. You and I have talked about that right. a little bit. Still not well understood what is happening uh, What is happening there. Um, maybe some of it is over-regulation and some of it is just a downturn in, in innovation, as uh, Robert Gordon North Western says. But those are the factors. The Fed is not responsible for the fact that we've had a measly 2% a year growth. Um, that's a good year. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that, that's a good year. You know, talking about uh, growth, there, there was a little surprise, um, you know, going from uh, the September to the December meeting, as you know, four times a year giving the economic projections, that given Trump proposals, given the jump in stocks and in bond yields, that the the real GDP growth in 2017 over 2018 is a measly one tenth of a percent more. Um, is it now? And I, you can interpret that two ways. One is he ain't going to really do much, um, or or you could say, hey, we have to work that through when we know what he's going to do. You right. pointed that out earlier. Or you know what? And this is another one. The, maybe the long-run growth isn't much more than that. So if he pushes there, we're going to have to hit interest rates to keep 
the labor market in line uh, and stop inflation. Um, now, any of those can kind of help explain that. I don't know if you have a, a, a favorite uh, explanation uh, of uh, this very, very modest, given the big reactions right. in the markets themselves. Yeah, so I won't, I won't comment on the overall uh, view of the committee. I can just speak for myself. Absolutely. So my view of 17 is 2.3%. Okay. And then settling back down to 2.121 and 18 and 19. Um, and By the way, that's that two-tenths of a percent above uh, in 2017. Uh, and uh, 2.121, you said? Yeah. In 18, yeah, 19, yeah. that's one-tenth and two-tenths. And that, in my case, I did not factor in any stimulus to the economy occurring by uh, the new administration and new Congress. Because, again, I don't know what exactly that looks like, and so it's hard for me to factor that in until I have more specificity on what that looks like. There is a question. We are going to go, even in those conditions, without any additional stimulus, uh, we are going to dip below what I view the natural rate Mm -hmm. of unemployment to be, and barring some change in, say, productivity, as you mentioned, uh, we would see some inflationary pressures. In- pressures. And we're starting to see that right now. We're starting to see anecdotally when we put together the Beige Book and with our contacts throughout the region, one hospital system in the third district had given nurses a significant raise last year and then giving them now another 9% raise mm, this wow. year and because they're just shortages. Well, what's happening is in industry after industry, we, the baby boomers, are retiring. Mm-hmm. And we're hitting that retirement age and we're not coming back. I mean, it's just the evidence is pretty clear. The long-term labor force participation, while it spiked up a little bit recently, as Shigeru Fujita on our staff, an economist on our staff, has done extensive work in this area. The long-term trend, the, you know, the secular trend is very clear. Mm-hmm. And unless we do something else with respect to the labor force, the labor force is going to be shrinking. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're seeing. We're hearing in healthcare. We're hearing in, I don't know if you saw The Economist recently, they had a, an estimate of the fastest growing jobs uh, in the United States, percentage-wise. And after data analysts and operations research analysts, which I'm very glad that's me. Right? Yeah, I'm that was your department, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad that we're growing. Uh, it's all pretty much uh, medicine. medicine. Yeah. But I think the issue, uh, back to labor force participation, once we dip significantly below, below what I view as a natural rate, say 4.7, 4.8, somewhere around there. The Fed is at 4.8. That natural yeah. rate is... For our listeners, a long run rate at which there wouldn't be any in particular inflationary pressures right. that that arise. We are at four six, uh, I think, at the December last month, right. and uh, we're going to on Friday. We're going to be getting another right. one, and right. and uh, and the Fed does in eighteen and nineteen expect it to dip as you claim below that rate four five four five. Are you a bit below? I'm that? four four. So you're a little bit below that, yeah. which would course also correspond to a little bit more strength there, maybe. Yeah, and the so GDP. again but we have to be willing to recognize that as things change, our policy has to change. Right? So we need to be adaptive to the policy framework outside of monetary policy. As those things change, we need to change our forecasts and our path. This has been a great discussion for the first part of the program. We're going to be back with Pat Harker. You're listening to Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 111. We'll be back after a short break. We have in the studio here Wharton Fine Professor Jeremy Siegel and also Philly Fed President Pat Harker. Uh, we're just talking about monetary policy, economic growth, uh, and we we're talking about the sort of labor market. Uh, Professor, you want to kick back here for the second part of the program? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh Again, thank you, Pat, for being here. This is, is quite, a tr- quite a treat for us. Uh, you are rotating on as voting member mm-hmm. uh, this year for, for the first time. Let me just, for our listeners, uh, just talk a little bit about the structure of the Fed and, and voting. Um, there are seven governors that sit in Washington called the Board of Governors. Um, and then there are 12 uh, presidents of the regional banks, of which uh, Pat here on my right is president of the Federal Reserve Bank of, of Philadelphia. Um, all the uh, Fed governors uh, have v- voting rights uh, at each meeting. However, one, one should note that there are only um, five currently occupying the uh, chairs. There's two that are uh, open at the present time, and uh, Donald Trump 
very soon uh, after his uh, becomes president, certainly has the uh, or, or even before has a right to to bring them up for nomination. So there, that that is important. Of the twelve regional bank presidents, uh, there are five that are voting members at. Uh, at any time, they wrote, uh, rotate in and out of the year with the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York being a permanent voting member. The others uh, generally ro- ro- are out for two years and then an in one year, except for Chicago and Cleveland, that's, that just alternate out. Now, from my—and you've already, of course, sat through a number of meetings— Everyone is treated as an equal until finally you vote and, mm-hmm. and you know, so everyone gets their uh, ideas heard. Um, but a vote also means that if you dissent, you get a special little <laughs> a note. I mean, that's a note of, of Fed watchers watch that very, very closely uh, and the reasons why you may dissent with, with a type of policy. So Pat is, uh, you know, going to be. Uh, having uh, a vote coming uh, uh, with us, um, it was it was unanimous for the last uh, increase, which I think was absolutely appropriate. Um, uh, what is your view for 2017? Uh, the Fed, uh, in terms of the dot plot, uh, suggests two, actually closer to three. Increases. Um, we only had one last year. What, what's your thought? So I'm in penciled in for three increases next year. Okay. However, that's uh, subject to a lot of uncertainty. As the policy uncertainty resolves itself, we'll be able to see whether it's three, two, four. Right now, I think, given where the economy is, and at least our best estimate of the growth path we're on, I think three is appropriate. But again. That's subject to revision. We, we all, I mean, and as we've mentioned on this show, and as you know, last December, the Fed thought it might do three in 2016. The market fell apart in the first quarter, and they said, whoa, uh, we got we to tread cautiously, which I think was absolutely correct. I mean, the deflationary pressures of the oil price and commodity price collapse in the first two months of last year were, were really scary, uh, in, in my opinion. Yep. And uh, we, we saw what happened to, to all the markets. Uh, we're you know, starting out 2017, thankfully, much differently. Commodity prices are, have stabilized. You know, OPEC has uh, you know, done some restriction. Oil prices now are in their 50s. I don't think we're going to have that scare. And that's why I think also we're, we're going to be in a more normal mode. All that said, the dollar is still... Very high right. and rising. That's a factor, is it not? Oh, of course. I mean, it's a factor for a significant portion of our economy, the manufacturing, export-led businesses. Um, but that's not the majority of our economy. But you know, consumer spending, of course, is seventy percent of GDP. So it is an issue, though, that we have to continue to monitor. And I get this question a lot. So do we monitor the dollar? Yes, in the sense of its impact, its strengthening or weakening on the U.S. economy. Because, again, we have to come back to our mission is our dual mandate within the United States. So the dollar's impact on our economy is what I I think about and focus on. You know, you mentioned the, the dual mandate. Um, as, as our listeners know, that means basically the Fed is supposed to monitor inflation. Um, they have set a goal of 2% stable inflation growth. They are moving towards that. It does mm-hmm. appear now that we're having – some success at and moving uh, in that direction from being uh, on the low side, uh, and also what we call full employment towards that, which it looks like we basically already are at, although there are a little bit more discouraged workers than we've had in some past mm-hmm. uh, uh, recoveries there. Um, there's been a lot of discussion over the years about uh, the dual mandate um, and whether the Fed should pay as much attention as it does to the unemployment rate. And it should, in fact, as some of these critics say, just target the inflation rate, which from at least theory has a better chance of, of actually controlling in, in, in the long run. Putting that at least as a primary. I mean, if you look at the ECB uh, and many of the other central banks, 
uh, in their charters, they often say uh, it is to achieve price stability um, and uh, without any, um, uh, you know, if if, the, if that can be achieved, we will look at employment and other factors that are important. Right. But they do put that one first. We have the duo. They're both on an equal footing. Are you comfortable with that or would you like to see price stability raised to a more prominent position? So our mandate from Congress is the the dual mandate. Right. So with that, I am comfortable with that because that's what we're charged with. Now, that said, we have to recognize that the relationship between unemployment um, and inflation, the Phillips curve, is pretty flat right now, right? And so, But you can't disentangle the relationship between the two. I think we're starting my own intuition right now is that we are going to start to see that curve steepen some as we're starting to see these wage pressures and other things starting to kick in. But again, that we'll have to see that play out over time. Um, so again, you can't – while I think you can say target one versus the other, there is this intimate relationship between the two that we have to take into account, A. And B, it is what Congress told us to do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, again, about what some of the Republican legislation might be. Um, uh, we all know John Taylor. I mean, mm-hmm. he's an academic monetary theorist. He was undersecretary of treasury and – very, very prominent. Um, he has come up through the years with something called the Taylor Rule, which is a rule for setting interest rate or at least benchmarking and looking at that. Uh, the Republicans do have legislation that the Fed should look at that and report when they deviate that back to uh, Congress. Um, the Fed is, of course, fierce about its own independence and bristles at being told how to conduct monetary policy. Um, what, what's your view uh, on that? And recognizing, uh, and, and not that I know what's in Donald Trump's mind, uh, uh, but uh, he has often been mentioned as one of the candidates and in some circles as a leaning, leading candidate uh, that may replace Janet Yellen when her term ends at the end of next year. So what are your, your thoughts? So I think the reality is to our listeners that every meeting and in preparation for all the meeting, we look at all these rules. There's no one rule, right? There's a Taylor rule, the inertial Taylor rule, the optimal control rule. There's a series of rules based on a variety of different models. And so those come into play. We look at those quite, I do, just look at those quite carefully of what they say about the appropriate path of policy of the Fed funds rate. That said, to be to dictate policy by one rule, first you have to pick the rule, right? And there's always, as we the quants call it, model error, right? There's always, you may just have the wrong model. Then B, you're putting data into the model that we know gets revised over time. That's imperfect. I mean, we, for example, in Philadelphia put out something, GDP+, plus which is a measure, an estimate of GDP, which is a better estimate of GDP than GDP itself uh, because we know GDP gets revised. So you're putting in data that has a lot of noise around it, GDP, inflation, unemployment numbers, and depending on the model. So you know you have model risk, and now you have uncertainty around the data. And as a policymaker, you're, you're then supposed to say, and that's the appropriate path of policy. As a modeler, I mean, sort of a career as a modeler, yeah. as a quant, mm-hmm. I find that difficult to, to accept. I think we need to look at those rules and take those rules seriously, what they say about the appropriate path of policy. I have been an advocate in my public comments for quite a while for um, a steeper path of policy normalization than actually occurred. But for a variety of reasons, we didn't follow that path. Uh, but I think it's it would be very difficult to tie the hands of the committee to say one must follow one particular rule. Because I think there would even be an argument over Although which rule. Although that rule was a steeper path, as right. you yourself seems and to have supported. And I was supported. okay. But uh, which exact rule do we follow as opposed to looking at a portfolio of different models to give you different perspectives and trying to come up with the right policy path through that. Let me uh, just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Philadelphia Fed President Pat Harker. We have Professor Siegel here. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, 
Pat, we, you know, on, Professor Kate has mentioned a few times that there's two openings, Fed, the Fed governors. Uh, well, while we know you're not going to comment on a specific person, but you came outside of the normal econ, say, PhD type uh, uh, economist angle, sort of operations, information, technology background. Uh, what would you say, you know, the, the, the types of people we should be looking for for those two positions? I mean, do you think we need more economists, traditional economists? Do you think we need more people outside? I mean, you have sort of a very special background on technology and how that might be changing the future of money. I sort of want to get into that a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. So I think what makes the Fed work is the diversity of opinions, perspectives, experiences, right? We're all human beings. We're all creatures of our past, our own academic training, our own life experiences that we've had. So you want in that room for policy-making purposes a diverse set of opinions. First and foremost, I want to go back to some of the uh, comments that uh, Jeremy said earlier. One of the beauties of the Federal Reserve System is the geographic diversity that we have through the 12 regional banks. If you look at over history, who has dissented more than others? It's typically the regional bank presidents and not the governors. So it's providing a diversity of opinion, whether it comes from different regions of the country or different perspectives. And it's that portfolio that matters. So I don't think it's all economists or all business people. It's the mix of all that that, it, that makes it work. And so I won't comment on those specific uh, individuals for those two seats, other than to say that they, what we need, and I think what's worked over time for the Fed, is having a diverse group of people who have had, again, different life experiences, some with a business experience, whether it's in banking or in other experiences, different academic training. That's what makes the Fed work. So would you comment on where you're lacking the most at this point? No, I won't comment. That's up to the president-elect to decide. Uh, that is not my role. Uh, let me go back a little bit. You said, you know, in the past or even maybe now, you were uh, perhaps for a little bit more aggressive, steep in, uh, steeper increase is in uh, the federal funds rate. Um, uh, th- that would also in the Taylor rule. Uh, I've often commented, and that seems to be a very, very hot topic among the Fed members themselves that the Taylor rule might have changed because what we call our star, right. that, that neutral rate of interest rate, which uh, 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 keeps the economy just level, which used to be often thought of as after inflation being 2%. Now there's a lot of talk about it being zero. And as you know, one of your colleagues, James Board from the Federal Reserve St. Louis says, oh, I think it's actually negative, And I think we're right at that our star now with the December increase, um, there has, when you look at those dots for that long run, we've had quite a decline, although that just in December they sort of stabilized there. Um, that has to do with maybe slower long-term growth, maybe slower long-term uh, uh, productivity growth. That's a very important variable in the feeding in how fast do you want to, quote, normalize that, that rate. Uh, has that been in your consideration? Oh, of course. Also? I mean, so there, as you mentioned, there are lots of estimates of our star. Laubach Williams, John Williams with Thomas Laubach, an economist at the Fed, has their model. And there are a lot of models, and they all vary, but they've all shown a d- decline over yeah. a period of time. I mean, there's no question about that. So what do you do about that? Well, it fundamentally comes back to what we were talking about earlier. How do we raise economic growth in the country? It's productivity growth. Economic growth, by definition, is productivity growth plus growth of the labor force. Neither of those issues is in the wheelhouse of the Federal Reserve System. We are there to support that growth through monetary policy. But these are policies that are outside, and not just a Congress. We focus a lot on Congress. But it's in states, it's in communities and cities. It's moving productivity and bringing highly skilled, productive people into the workforce, right, both in, coming from inside the United States and actually outside the United States. So those issues are, again, not for the Fed to opine on. They are uh, someone else's responsibility, other than to say without appropriate policies in those domains, improving productivity and the skill and number of the labor force, we're not going to see the kind of economic growth. We're not going to see our star increase anytime soon. And I am hopeful that I am not – I don't believe that secular stagnation 
is something that we just have to assume as a given. We can move the needle on those things, but we have we can only move the needle with the appropriate policies. Now, now as a former uh, uh, college dean um, here at Wharton and, and the University of Delaware, one of the things you talk about is human capital uh, and sort of the student, uh, you know, student debt is, I think, one of those issues, I think, out there. I mean, I, I was at dinner last night, sort of a little anecdote, but uh, parents next to me have children here at Drexel, $65,000 a year studying for music. And so the question is, is that two hundred fifty, two hundred seventy thousand they're going to rack up in debt? Is that going to pay off for them? Is that, but what do you think about the human capital investments we're making? You know, is, is college getting out of bounds for people? And, and how, how should that change if we're trying to get the most productive workforce we have? So first we have to start with a, a more basic question. And this is an odd question for a former university president uh, to pose, but should everybody go to a four-year college? Yeah. I mean, it's, and it should, and the second question is, should everybody take a linear path to a four-year college degree? And I think the answer to the, both those questions is no. There are many great jobs that don't require a four-year degree. In fact, we, the Philly Fed, along with the Atlanta and Cleveland Fed, put out a great report called Opportunity Occupations. What are the jobs in America and by uh, metropolitan area where you can earn above median wages and not have a four-year college degree? And there are lots of them. But then the second issue is should we then, should we create different pathways so somebody can go right from a high school to maybe an apprenticeship or to a community college, work, and then find their way back to a four-year degree if it's appropriate for them and they have the aptitude. There's a good example here in the district. There's Pennsylvania College of Technology up in Williamsport that I visited about a year ago. And they do a great job. They're affiliated with Penn State. So people can go. They, the manufacturing lab there, every one of those students had four or five job offers on graduation mm-hmm. coming out of their manufacturing lab. And for those that show the aptitude and the willingness, they can then move on and get a four-year degree at Penn State. We need to create different pathways for students to, to pursue careers, then I think we've, we've sent the mantra, everybody needs something beyond high school. I fully agree with that. But not everybody needs to go right away to a four-year college. And Jeremy, you mentioned about Drexel. It has its own unique program, right? I mean, right. The uh, co-op program. The co-op program. You do actually go to work there. Yeah, you you go do to work. work integrated with. Yeah, uh, it's a great program. And it's getting more and more popular. Yeah. Uh, uh, among the students, I, I agree wholehearted with this idea. You just go four years and then you get prepared for a job. We need to think much more creatively about yep. that. It's hard to change that mindset among people where you just, you know, you just have this this status quo and everybody yeah. goes into that system thinking that they have to go get this, you know, maybe liberal arts education. And the question is, is that going to be payoff for everybody? And some of it also is, uh, I was talking to a, a fellow, a major automobile manufacturer who uh, is in, operates in the southern state and they couldn't find workers to come in and work in manufacturing. And what they they realized, they had to bring the parents on field trips, not the students, to see what manu- modern yeah. manufacturing actually looked like. It wasn't just people with a strong back, you know, bending steel. It was numerically controlled machines. It was high-tech yeah. jobs with high skill. We need to change the mindset of many of these jobs right. in the, the assembly line wasn't glamorous uh, back then, but it's, uh, it's very different now yeah. um, in terms of that. I mean, and thank you for your remarks. As I say, very rarely have we had someone who's been as much in education and then at the Fed uh, uh, at the same time. Um, circling around again a little bit uh, on, on that interest rate, um, and you said, yes, it has declined. Um, the Fed puts it at three. Uh, you've been pretty open. Uh, do you think it might be a couple tenths above that as the long run? Uh, so I'm about at three for the long run. You're about at the three for the long run. Yeah, uh, shooting a, a little over in 19, but then coming back to around three. But I, do you, does, does this mean that we're going to get out of our productivity slump? I mean, so, so James Bullard says we are just in a slump with such high risk aversion. I'm not saying it's going to stay there forever. And in fact, he declines to give a long run on right. that basis. He will give the years up to 19, but he declines to give a long run because we might we might switch. Uh, I don't see the signs of it right now. Uh, do you think we'll get out of this slump? Is is this something that uh, is just temporary, or could it last, persist for three, four, five more years? Well, it could. I mean, I, never, never say never. Yeah. But I do think that 
I'm an optimist in the sense that I think the creativity of American businesses, of American business leaders, uh, with the proper support from policy, mm-hmm. can increase productivity. Now, some of these issues, there are lots of reasons why productivity has declined, right? And there are lots of, at least, theories yeah. why. Some is the shift from high productivity manufacturing to services, and we're consuming more and more services as we age. That's a secular With a trend. lower productivity right. and growth, that's a, secular a trend. lot of that because we can't really measure it as well. Right, and that's a secular trend. That's not going away. Yeah. There's an issue with aging firms and aging workers. Uh, what you're seeing is that if, if we're not getting enough new business formation, new businesses tend to have higher productivity. And so we need to stimulate new business formation if we want that to happen. And we need to sti- stimulate new workers with the skills necessary coming into the workforce for that productivity to occur as well. And a host of other explanations that people have given. Some are, as I said, with the long-term demographics, probably difficult to deal with unless we deal with things like immigration, which is a a very difficult issue to deal with, especially high-tech immigration that you hear a lot of firms looking for uh, more high-tech workers. That's a more difficult thing. But then there are some things we can do in terms of business formation and creating more competitive environments for um, business failure so that we have that turnover of firms that would add more productivity. If there's a more productive firm coming in, that clears you know, people. Inevitably, they're winners and losers in every market. So we need to make sure that that occurs. You, you haven't mentioned Sarbanes-Oxley. We all know, and you point out, the decline in new business formation, the decline in new businesses that list on the market. Right now, there's private equity. They go and get absorbed in an existing building that the burdens are seemingly very, very great, ongoing public. I mean, do you think there could be reform in that area that spurs the business formation? There could be, and but we also have to recognize that there are economic forces, network and scale effects that will always be there, whether we, whether SOX gets reformed or not. I mean, the fact is, I had a student here at Wharton many, many years ago explained the world to me very precisely. He said, large, complicated firms don't know how to innovate. The small firms innovate. The big firms have the, the platform to deliver, so they just buy the small guy and they and they get absorbed into the big firm. And that's the way the world is, and you can't stop it. That's what this young person But there used to be more of that. It used to be a, a small firm would have a, would go public a little bit, get some market value or outside funding right. to even get a little bit of a greater footing uh, and before it decides to be absorbed, if it does decide to be right. absorbed. Um what, what is the number of stocks in the Wilshire 5,000 now, Jeremy? I don't know if you know. Yeah, it, it's down it used to, to like be 5,000. I, I don't even think yeah. it's 4,000 yeah, now. They can't find them. <laughs> but I think there are issues there of aging firms. That is clearly one of the issues that's causing the slowdown in productivity. I wouldn't say the only issue, but it's one of the issues. Um, you know, I was reading one of your, your past books on the, how to measure the performance of, of financial companies. And you talked about banking and, and sort of all sorts of how to measure the performance of banking. I, there was an interesting quote. This was 20 years ago in the 90s. Um, and you said, you know, Microsoft could be a type of company that would buy a bank. Now, and then you talked about um, sort of perhaps logistics firms like FedEx or UPS. They control the transportation of goods. Perhaps they can control the transportation of money. Do you see... Th- these sort of non-banking players, wh- why they haven't come in, you could say, in, in a bigger capacity? Do you see guys like Apple, Google, Amazon, the future of tech getting into money? Uh, and but maybe who owns it, PayPal? PayPal, that was sort of an offshoot of, I mean, but is that... Is that uh, but So people are entering, but they're not entering as a bank as we know it today, yeah. right? They're, they're looking at whether it's Apple Pay, and they're looking at different aspects of the financial landscape and saying, where can we compete? And I think that's a healthy thing. And we shouldn't stop or stymie that kind of innovation. But that they're recognizing as well, a lot of the fintech startups, eventually they need to partner with banks and be part of a com- more complicated system. So we at the Federal Reserve are going through a, a multi-year discussion around what the future of the payment system is, for example. And there it's clear that the rails, the fundamental rails of delivering financial services to the nation, um, people want to not necessarily do that part. Right? They want to do other parts. And that's okay. I mean, that's where some of the innovation will occur. So I think it's going to be that mix of whether it's the Fed or others providing some of the basic rails and 
other services that others will provide to innovate. And eventually, some of those banks then partner with those fintech companies. Mm-hmm. So you're going to see a lot of that change happening over time. And I don't, I think that's a good thing. I don't think we should get in the way of that innovation. Can, can you see a future where we don't have a dollar bill that we can, you know, like India's removing their, some of their big bills? People talked about yeah, Europe, $500 well, suggests. Uh, well, maybe some point down the future, but there's still – we still issue a lot of currency. We every reserve bank has a, a vault where I'm, we still I'm one issue. of the people that say be very careful about removing any currency. Right. So it's a it's an important Greece. I'm I'm concerned about India, and uh, I yeah, think the slump is it, going to be deeper there than they think. It's a it's a very difficult issue. And if you ask uh, that question, just look at a little bit of history. How long have we been discussing not having the penny? Uh, and so. I think that's a conversation that maybe someday down the road, but I don't think it's uh, for prime time right now. Because when you ask now. the average, you know, it quite, they just came out with a new estimate, a, do, a penny and a half right. to create the penny. It was higher at one point when copper was higher, but it's a penny and a half. And the major, major problem was when everyone says, well, if you eliminate the penny, everyone's going to round up to the next nickel. You know that. They're all going to round up to the next nickel, and that's that's – that's the way they so feel about it. Until we resolve that, I don't penny. think we're at risk of getting rid of all currency in the United States. So, yeah. You know, talking about it, it's interesting what, what Jeremy said about creating it, but I don't know anyone that today, given the regulations, would say, I want to start a bank. I don't know if it's possible. I mean, you'd have to like study for five years to figure out how to start a bank. No, de novo <laughs> banks, there is a, there's clearly a slump, and it is a concern, right? Yeah. We do need new bank formation. There is an interesting bank here in the district that's serving the Amish community, really understands the Amish community, understands their needs, understands their unique way of doing things. And they've been growing and doing very nicely. So there continues to be there continue to be markets that are open to those de novos. And we should think about uh, getting out of the way uh, and making sure that they can flourish. Yeah, we have about two, we have about two minutes left. Uh, we've covered a whole host of topics, but any any other sort of final thoughts? Any places, things you think we should have covered here, Pat, that we that we have not talked about yet? I I, uh, I mean, I think we we talked about a lot of things. You talked about how much increases we have, and I think that's if the economy does fairly well. Um, you're a couple tenths above the Fed, which barely budged as a result of Trump. Let me let me ask you, what would you, and I get this question all the time, what, what what would you think is the biggest danger or concern in 2017 uh, looking forward? So my big biggest concern is concern. And what do I mean by that? <laughs> I mean, the biggest risk I think we face is uncertainty, right? If you ask every business leader, uh, their biggest concern, it's just whatever changes occur, just do them gradually. <laughs> Let us adapt to them. They've been in a world of change for a long time. And that's not going to go away. We can't take away change. Change is you know, part, change, of life. part of life. So, but it's please, please don't do anything drastic. This is what I'm hearing from people, all my contacts, that if you're going to do something, do it in a way that we can adjust. That's their biggest concern is that something hits them and they simply can't, they don't have the time uh, and the resources to adjust. There's been a certain lot of things they had adjusted to. I mean, the Republican tax program, they're talking about some pretty massive changes. Now, what finally comes out of that, we need reform. Um, it's sometimes it's best to jump into the cold water or take it easy. Of course, there may be phase-ins on some of it also. Right. I don't know. I'm just talking about what I hear from my contacts. It's yeah. Just, whatever um, happens, just don't surprise us with it. <laughs> well, Pat Harker, thank you for coming down. Former Dean of Warren, always great to be on the yes, Warren campus. Thank you so here. much. Uh, this is Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 111. Have a great week. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.